So welcome to Encounter. This is our first session of the fall. And what we're focusing on throughout the whole season is how God is with us, even in the mess. And sometimes, especially in the mess. And so Dr. Samir Yadav from Westmont College is going to be coming and kicking us off by talking about trauma first and then the incarnation. Um, and so I'm going to have him give you a little more of his background, but we're so happy and thankful for you uh, to be here with us. And I'm going to open us in prayer. God, thank you for the gift of your presence with us. God, thank you that we can come here and learn more about who you are and what it means to live as your living stones in this world. Help us to be more faithful disciples. Would you shape us and form us by your spirit? And thank you for Dr. Yudav and all the wisdom that he brings. Would we treasure it and cherish it? Amen. Thank you. All right. I'm hoping I won't. Do I, do I actually need this or can I just... I Okay. Is it alright if I just... Uh, As everyone can, everyone can you like, hear me alright? And I'm, I'm kind of loud, okay. so I'm told. And if not, just don't whisper in my ear. Alright, alright. So I'm just going to set this down. Um, so, uh, is this your phone? Cool. Uh, so I am Samir Yadav. Um, I'm a systematic and philosophical theologian at Westmont College. Um, and um, I've been there since 2015. I've been a member of this congregation for a few years now. And um, uh, this, is, this is the first time I'll be teaching an encounter series, but it's like the third time I've been asked. <laughs> so um, I'm very thankful that it's worked out for it to, to happen this time. Um, there's actually a handout here. I'll, uh, does anybody? Or, yeah, thanks, Nikki, for handing that out. Um, just for, so you to follow along. Um, so when, when Pastor Nikki approached me about doing this um, topic related to God being with us in the mess, I thought first that what I wanted to do is to start by um, doing a two-part series on God, God with us in trauma. And I thought the way I would do it would be by starting out talking about um, my, here's where my imagination went. It went like this. Um, we're Christians, right? And what it, what's unique about... Oh my goodness, look at this. Can I just introduce myself to your dog really quick? Is that... Yeah, but he's not supposed to take your distraction. Oh, I know, but you're too good. Finley. Finley. I love dogs. Sorry. Um, um, so I thought, look, uh, we're Christians and... One of the things that's unique about being a Christian is we think that in, um, it's not just that God has offered us salvation uh, for us and for our sake. So God is not just for us, but God is with us in Jesus. And the doctrine of the incarnation is just that doctrine, that rather than just being for us, God actually comes to be with us as us. Um, and I think that that is a powerful thing to think about. Like, what does that imply? What, what difference does it make that God is with us and not just for us, all right? Um, and so I thought I wanted to start by talking about a traditional kind of orthodox Christian doctrine of the incarnation. And there's some technicalities to it, but I wanted to talk about that and then talk about how understanding that doctrine helps us to see how um, God might be with us in trauma. But then as I was thinking more about it, um, I actually decided kind of at the last minute that I wanted to reverse the order and talk about trauma first and then talk about the incarnation second. And so I'll be talking about incarnation next time. Um, the, doing it the, the way that I, the, kind of changing up my approach, you'll see why in a moment, but it felt also a little bit more risky for me because it has to do with some things that I've been thinking about recently when it comes to the problem of suffering. Um, and um, work that I've been actually academic work that I've been doing on the book of Job and so I, yeah which is like a good place to do this kind of thing right um, so uh, so actually that's what I want to talk about I want to talk about Job as a way of thinking about suffering and trauma first and, um, um, and so that's that's what we're gonna do we're first of all gonna talk about how suffering can introduce a problem for our presence with one another, a kind of problem for the way we can be present to one another as believers, and then even a problem 
suffering can introduce a problem for how we are present to God and how God is present to us. That's what I want to talk about from the book of Job. And then I want to suggest that the book actually that Job offers a familiar picture of how suffering with loss, um, even when that loss is born righteously before God with our believing communities, can be a source of trauma. Can be a source of trauma. And um, what I want us to see by the end of the session is that the experience of the religiously traumatized reveals um, a kind of shared need that we all have for God to actually be in solidarity with us in our suffering, for God to be in solidarity with us in our suffering. And my hope is that when we come to see how the incarnation serves to meet this need, we can see it as God's provision for a problem that we're going to be taught. So it's kind of a problem solution. I want to talk problem today, solution next week. All right. That's that's the idea. Uh, and, and because we're going to be working through Job and it's a big book, um, uh, I'm going to be kind of talking about the book uh, with a, the, some assumption of familiarity, um, and, but we're not going to be able to dive into like a lot of the passages. I'm gonna, we're going to just hit highlights along the way. Um, how many of you are familiar with the story of Job? You raise your hands. So pretty much most, most of us are know, kind of know how the story goes. A basic outline, just as a refresher, um, would be like this. The, let me get a drink here first. Um, it's that Job is a righteous person who God allows to undergo terrible suffering and loss in order to demonstrate to this accuser, who's called the Satan the accuser, that Job is not actually using God in order to get a safe and secure life. That's the, that's the major theme. The, the accusation that comes at the beginning is that Job maybe is just using his righteousness with God to secure something for himself. A, a, a nice life that's ordered, you know, and, and um, that supplies all his needs. And that if therefore that security and safety is taken away, that Job would curse God to his face. So God, is made, uh, so God allows Job to suffer terribly the loss of his family, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his social standing, the loss of his economic security, the loss of his social standing in community. Um, and all of these things without knowing why. And his personal health. Exactly. And his bodily condition. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about that too. His bodily condition. And um, so some respected members of Job's religious community come to console him and comfort him. And Job is so offended by the way that they do it that most of the book is spent with him arguing with them. That's most of the book, is Job arguing with the people trying to comfort him, people who belong to his own religious community. And so um, then God shows up near the end of the book. God shows up to referee this dispute between Job and his comforters. And um, basically, God uh, um, vindicates Job in the dispute. And... Um, declares that Job has been in the right. But even so, God goes on to rebuke Job for wanting to know why he had to suffer so terribly. And um, Job responds by resigning himself to his fate. And then God restores his fortunes. And Job takes his place among the heroes of Israel, even as a non-Israelite, actually, a Yahweh worshiper. All right. So that's kind of how the story goes, roughly. And... Um, I want to, if you think about that story, it has really like four basic movements. It's like Job's loss, then his encounter with his friends, then his encounter with God, and then his restoration, right? That's kind of the, the, the outline. So what I want us to do is to, just in the brief time we have, is to observe some key things about his trauma and his unmet needs for solidarity that I think uni unifies these four parts, that brings them together. So let's start then, if you have your handout, with his suffering. And this is what I call Job's calamities, like all the things he suffers. So um, I should also ask, um, if you have a Bible, it might help to um, follow along with some, some of the text that we'll be looking at. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then I can just read them. So... It's, this, is not a, this is not a judgment on your eternal soul, but who has, who has a Bible? Anybody? 
I knew Helen would have a Bible, um, um, if, if not having it memorized. Um, uh, so, uh, anybody else have a Bible? You want to grab some? I, I thought it might be good to have other people read some verses so that I don't have to talk so much and that you don't have to listen to me so much. Because I know that's not always the most pleasant thing. All right. So while, while those Bibles are being secured, I'll, um, I'll just kind of go on here. Um, so the first thing I want us to think about is this question is, what does Job lose? What actually does he lose? And how does he feel about it? We've already talked a little bit in the summary of the story of what he lost. He, um, he's lost, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff. So in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, um, let me see here. Yeah. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job, saying, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding before them, the Sabaeans came upon them and, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, meaning they killed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And then he was still speaking, and the Chaldeans came and formed three groups, made a raid on the camels, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And, you're, and so nobody's even finished talking before the next, <laughs> the next wave comes, right? And um, then the last wave is the most devastating of all of them. While they were speaking, another said, your sons. Your daughters, they were eating and drinking in your eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness. The four corners of the house fell and it crushed everyone. They all died. And I alone escaped to tell you. Um, this is a story of catastrophic loss, catastrophic loss. And, and it comes in a wave um, because often loss comes that way. When life, you know, sort of introduces uh, uh, what seem like ordinary difficulties that term, turn into extraordinary difficulties that turn into impossible difficulties, right? Um, and that's what Job suffered. Um, how do, and then it says in verse, uh, uh, down in verse 20, how he responded. Anybody who has a, a Bible, what does it say? How does Job respond in verse 20 of chapter 1? Yeah, yeah. He shaved his head, fell down on the ground, and did what? <laughs> That's the non sequitur, is the last bit, <laughs> right? And he worshiped, and what he worshiped uh, by saying is that God is given and God's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Uh, this response, though, I think we should see the, the first part of the response is to respond by uh, a kind of mourning that's associated with the experience of, a, of, of, great, of great loss or trauma. The trauma of loss, we'll talk about trauma um, a bit more, and I'll, I'll expand on it more next week, but um, a clinical definition of trauma, so there's a lot of trauma studies. I mean, one of the, the most classic ones is probably Judith Herman's work on trauma. Um, that she, she, this uh, uh, psychologist who does uh, work on what trauma is, how it affects the body, and then there's others who, um, who have worked on this, uh, I think Norman Wright, uh, a new guide to uh, clinical trauma. Denny maybe knows some of this stuff um, better than me. But um, trauma clinically is defined as any event that shatters your world so that it is no longer a place of refuge. It's not safe anymore. The world isn't safe anymore. Uh, an ordinary healthy upbringing is often one in which um, from the time you are not even old enough to know anything, you experience an environment of safety. You're supposed to experience an environment of safety and security so that you can learn how the world works in a context that is not constantly under threat, right? The nurturing of family is so important because it gives us a place where where we can learn and grow and fail and hurt and whatever in a wider context of safety and security. Where, where we're, because we all know what it's like to feel threatened, physically threatened. What kind of things happen to your body? Adrenaline. Heart, heart pounding, what else? Sweaty. Adrenaline? Adrenaline stress, yeah. So, adre 
a body rushes with adrenaline, your heart, your stomach, you know, flies up into your chest. Um, you feel tense and ready to like escape, right? Hypervigilance, being very careful to figure out exactly what's going around you because your your like nerves are you know ringing with Pressure's pressure. Your blood pressure goes way up, right? These are trauma responses that are responses to a feeling of no safety. I'm under threat. Uh, trauma uh, is therefore a subjective thing. It's uh, you could, trauma is this response of the body to the feeling of threat from a lack of safety, all right? And I want you to hold on to that idea of what trauma is as we keep going, all right? Um, so he, he describes this, this, uh, these things. The, the, his experience of loss is described exactly as a complete collapse of the safety of his world. In all these domains, everything becomes unsafe, everything. His social relationships to other people, unsafe. His bodily condition makes him unsafe for other people because it becomes a source of, of fear, curse, right, in his life. Same with his, uh, his family life is unsafe. Uh, it's full of grief and inability to function as, as things used to function. It's a shattered world, right? Every domain of life, his religious life, we'll see, comes to be shattered alongside it. Um, so here's a question that... Um, from the way the story goes, that is a, becomes a very important one for his calamities. Who knows and who doesn't know why God allowed Job to suffer these traumatic losses? We start with the courtroom scene, right, where we God and the accuser comes before God and says, "Hey, can you look at Job?" Yeah. Well, this is for the whole book. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we just studied not too long ago with a men's study. It goes on and on. That's good. And what I got out of it is that his God was too small. Yeah, sure. But what I find is be interesting, though, is like when you think about it, at the beginning, we have the courtroom scene, right? And it's like the veil of heaven has kind of pulled back, and you see God and this accuser talking to each other, like, hey, have you considered this Job guy down here, right? And then they, they concoct together this idea, let's test, let's, let's take away everything he has, all his shatter his safety and security, and see what happens. Does Job know what was happening up there? No, it's only God. no idea. <laughs> now here's a question. Do Job's friends that come to counsel him, do they know what happened up there? No. Nobody knows what happened up there except for the reader. They think they do. They think they do. Here's the rub. There's the rub. The difference between Job and his friends is that Job knows what he doesn't know. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. So they come, we're going to find his friends becoming pretty confident about why God is letting this happen to Job. Um, okay, but he, so that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But the, the condition of ignorance is one I want us to think about too. So we got trauma. I want us to think about a condition of ignorance, about the why. Everybody there below, Job and his friends, they're all on the same plane of ignorance where they have no idea why this is happening. And they have no access. No access to why. Right? They're, they don't have access to the throne room. All right. Neither do you. Um, neither do I. All right. So Job's comforters, uh, they, were, they were sincere, though, in chapter 2, verse 11. Could somebody read chapter 2, verse 11? Anybody? Cool. Yeah. Heard about all the troubles that they come upon They set out and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Yeah. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Yeah. So this is, um, this is a beautiful thing we see here. We see Job's friends rea reacting with um, immediately their first instinct, what they know immediately. Somebody whose world has been so shattered needs consolation. I mean, this is the two words you were here, they, they're sort of like consolation and sympathy, consolation and comfort, right? Though that's the main thing that Job needs. 
and they knew it right away. He needs this, so they go with him and sit down to offer this compassion, consolation, sympathy, comfort. But um, this, this leads to um, trouble because Job's response to his great suffering. So they saw that his suffering was great. After they see that his suffering was great, Job feels safe enough to tell them about his great suffering in chapter 3. And so he says, what, how does he respond to they were sitting with him silently? When he finally, seven days, they just sit there and consider the misery and collapse of his life around him. Right? And then Job finally feels safe enough to speak to them. And what does he say? It says in chapter 3, after this, he opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And then he goes on in chapter 3 to poetically, um, in heart-rending kind of terms, describe his desire to be dead. His desire to be dead. Um, and that desire for death, his desire for death is one that, that, that desires a release from pain and injustice. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, it says this. It says, In death, the wicked cease from troubling, and they're, and they're weary at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and great alike are there, and, they're free, and the, the, the um, slave is free from the master. And the idea is death is a great equalizer. All of the suffering... All of the unequal experience of burden and loss that we feel and see where we see some people just haven't seem to have it great. And some people uh, live in grinding conditions of poverty, oppression, difficulty with no relief. And then they die. Right. Death brings this plane, this equalizing plane of rest from this unjust conditions of, of suffering that we experience in life. So Job is despairing. Into, um, and um, his friends then, this is what triggers their reaction to Job. This is what triggers their re this response of Job to saying, I want to die. Life is miserable. There's no reason for this. And it makes no sense. And it's chaos. And I want out. And his friend's response is to get upset. <laughs> to get upset with that response. Um, they don't like it. They don't like it. Um, and I'm not going to go through all of his friends and their responses. We could be here for a long time. But we could just think about Eliphaz um, in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, I want to highlight a few things. Um, if you look at verse 6 in chapter 4, it says... Is not the fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your, your own ways, your hope? Right? That's the response. And then in verses 17 to 19, he goes on to say, uh, can, can any mortal man be right before God? Basically, you know, stop saying you're so righteous. Nobody's righteous before God. Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. His angels... Uh, he charges with air. How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, like us, whose foundation is dust or crushed like the earth? So, um, and then he goes on in in, ch in chapter five, verses fifteen to seventeen, to say, "But but God saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. God, the poor have hope in God, and injustice uh, sh uh, shuts her mouth before God. Behold, blessed is the one who God reproves, who God disciplines to make better, to to make productive their suffering. Therefore." Don't despise the discipline of the Almighty because he wounds, but he also heals. He also builds up. He shatters, but his hands heal too, right? Okay. Now here's the thing. You read Eliphaz and you're like, yeah. Right? That sounds about right. And in fact, it's this kind of stuff that we say all the, all the time <laughs> to each other. Um, so... Uh, but then we can ask, how does Job think about this, these kind of... So, in, in other words, if you want to summarize it, Job's to his suffering and he received the response. Here's his friends. Here's how they respond to his despair. They look at his despair and they're like, hey, don't you believe in God? Where's your hope? Don't you trust God to... to right? And God is doing this to make, 
for productive reasons. He's going to do something out of the suffering for you. So stop despairing, right? That's what they're saying to him. That's what they're saying to him. How does he respond to that? In chapter 6, verse 21, um, he, he takes a great offense. And we could actually back up and he, he goes on to, to tell, uh, in chapter 6 to respond to them by basically rebuking them for this response to him. And then instead he accuses them of something. In chapter 6, verse 21, he says, For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and you're afraid. Um, that's an interesting response. In 25 to 27, how forceful are your upright words? But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now you're pleased to look at, but now be pleased to look at me. Be pleased to look at me. So let's stop here and think for a second. There's two, um, well, if I wanted to add anything to that response of Job, I would uh, flash forward to chapter 19 and verse 28 and 29. He gets the same kind of speech from Bildad that he got from Eliphaz. And in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 19, he says, If you say, how will we uh, per, uh, pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, um, and that you might know there is judgment. Similarly, it's this, you're afraid of God's wrath and judgment. And what is he trying to say? I think there's two things, and we, have, we don't have a lot of time, so I'll go through them kind of briefly. Job, first of all, interprets these responses. Where's your hope, right? Why aren't you trusting in God and all this kind of stuff? He, ref he thinks that this is actually a fear response from them. A fear response. What Job discerns, and this happens throughout the book, he discerns that, he's like, you, you see my life out of control, in chaos, in, in ruins. And you know what your first thought is? Oh, crap. This could happen to me. Right? And the ability to take stuff about God that you think you know and throw it onto despair and terror is a form of what psychologists call terror management. <laughs> terror management. Uh, terror, and this is, this is just the idea that, you know, back to trauma. What, what is trauma? Trauma is the shattering of your sense of the safety of the world. Here's what Job is trying to tell them. The world is not safe. The world is not safe. The world is a chaotic place. It's chaotic. Things happen that you have no control over, that you cannot change, that you cannot manage. And just because you know that God manages it and is a governor and caretaker over the world, that does not give you some special insight as to why your life could be decimated tomorrow, today. Right? It doesn't give you that. And the ability to, to appeal to your, your beliefs about God in order to uh, un avoid the uncomfortable feelings that come from knowing how easily your life could be shattered, right? It leads to the second thing I wanted to talk about, which is not just terror management, but um, uh, which is called spiritual bypassing. You know, familiar with this phrase, spiritual bypassing? Spiritual bypassing is a phenomenon where you take religious truths that you believe and you use them as shields to avoid uncomfortable feelings and thoughts. So to take something difficult in life and that you don't want to deal with, you want to avoid, I don't want to think, what if, what if something horrible happens to my children? That's a terrifying thought, right? What if I lose my job tomorrow? And I don't, my family, what are we going to do? Right? You're making us feel like 
Yeah. We start to feel very uncomfortable and afraid because it starts to show us to ourselves the world is uncontrollable and I am vulnerable to the most horrific violence, the loss, disease, right? I'm vulnerable to those things and there ain't nothing that should make me think that I'm somehow immune. Why? Maybe because I'm a Christian I'm immune. Nope. <laughs> right? And so what do I do with those feelings? If I want to avoid them, I just, uh, where's the hope? God will work all things or something, right? And I take, I, I use my, my spiritual beliefs to, instead of using them to confront and work through something very difficult to come by very painful, long, hard work to reconcile myself to very difficult realities, I use it to, to avoid, you know? It's almost like a smoke bomb, you know? Just throw it down and run away. So when other people's pain reminds us of our incapacity to deal with difficulty, we throw spirituality at them to avoid our own discomfort. <laughs> right? That's what Job is saying. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. You're just afraid. That's why. That's, don't, don't ask me where's the hope when I'm despairing in front of you. Right? Oh. Give us the alternative at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> now let's be uncomfortable for a bit. Um, what does Job want from them? What does he want from them? Because um, let, let me just stop. The reason I emphasize this discomfort is because you know who the burden falls on when this happens? On the traumatized. The burden falls on people who are traumatized. And it, they're re-traumatized by your spiritual help. Right? Re-traumatized. You get re-traumatized when your, your safe world has been destroyed. Other people standing from a position of safety, assuming that they can, are helping from their position of safety by telling you things that nothing rides on those things for them because they're fine. Right? So they can, add, they can say, where's the hope? Easy. Right? Because who has to actually do the difficult wrestling to find the hope? They don't. You do. The traumatized does. You see what I'm saying? And so by what, the, what happens this way is that, that this experience of this kind of counseling, this kind of comforting, actually produces religious trauma. It, it, so trauma is a physio physiological response. So your feeling of the adrenaline, the feeling I'm not safe here, right? The feeling that this is, right? That's the, every time, you know, church does this to people. Church does this to people. Um, um, who come to church with trauma, who are met with spiritual bypassing and, and what I would call toxic positivity. <laughs> right? Toxic positivity. And they're re-traumatized, and then they leave, and then the spiritual in church say, what's their problem? We were just being the community to minister to their needs. Right? All right. So, what does Job want? What does he want? What do you want from us, traumatized people? What do you want from us? Um, back to chapter 6, in verse 28, he tells them, He says, but now, be pleased, it's hard to translate this from the Hebrew. Be pleased to look at me. Be pleased to look at me. I'm not going to lie to your face, right? What is he saying? He's saying, stop. Stop trying to console yourself because I'm such a trigger for your fear. Just look at me. Right? Stop, get your own uh, fear, deal, deal with that so that you can actually face me for how, who I am, how I am, how, how it actually is. Let's start speaking, just be able, like, this is a the impediment to your sight, this inability, your own inability to deal with the uncontrollability of the world. Yeah, we're good for seven days. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. 
I think that's, so he wants solidarity. He wants solidarity. What else does he want? Chapter 19, back to that Bildad chapter. He tells Bildad what he wants. Here's what he says. And again, translation-wise, this isn't, the one I have isn't good. It says, have mercy on me. That's not the word. Chapter 19, verse 21. Compassion. Have compassion on me, oh, you, my friends. Because the hand of God has touched me. He's saying, stop being on God's side. Be on my side. Don't pretend like you stand with God in universal providential judgment over the world and you know why God is doing this stuff so you and God can stand together and be like, we know this is productive for your spirituality. So take heart. Have hope. It's like, stop. You don't stand with God. Stand over here with me. Be on my side. Have compassion. Right? That's what he's asking from them. Um, have compassion on me, my friends. Um, so this, there's a lot more we could say here, but this goes on for like many, many chapters. And there's layers to this that are, uh, that deepen it, and, but we don't have time. So, so after this series of Job just trying to please, please look at me, please see me for how things are and have show solidarity and compassion. Then um, we also see Job confronting God. And before we get to the whirlwind, you guys know this? God appears in the whirlwind and like kind of intervenes on this whole uh, interaction. Before we get there, I want to build it up a little bit by talking about Job's, uh, and talking about Job's consolation. By, by asking you to look, to consider what Job has said. He said, look at me, consider me. Well, back in chapter 9, um, he actually has already expressed what he, what he wants from God. What he wants from God. He wanted God to appear. He said it a bunch of times before God shows up. But what he tells you, what he wants from God, and he says it in chapter 9, Verse 33. Um, back in 32, he says, God is not a, a, a human that I should answer him, that we could come to trial together. There's a gap between what I, the kind of thing I am as a creature and the kind of thing God is. But here's what he says in verse 33. There's no arbiter between us. There's no advocate is another term that you could translate this. There's, no, there's nobody that stand in between us who could what? To stand between us who might lay his hand on us both. Right? Somebody to lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let him not terrify me. Then I would speak to God without fear because I'm not so in myself. I know that nobody could answer like why God does, arranges our suffering the way God does. I need somebody who can stand between me on this side and God on this side and put his hands on us both. Right? To reconcile my inability to understand why, any, why calamity falls upon me and, and to reconcile myself to figuring out why and how to live with a God who, whose judgments I'm ignorant of but whose judgments can decimate my life. Right? That's what he wants. And this is an expression of he wants compassion. I don't want to be afraid. I want God, I want to speak to God and to have God understand me in a way that, that is arbitrated, right? He wants compassion and solidarity with God. But what does Job expect from God? What does he think he's going to get? That's what he wants. What does he think he's going to get? Well, he tells you in chapter 9, earlier in 916, Somebody read chapter 9, verse 16. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He wouldn't give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply yeah. my Interesting. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah right, right. <laughs> 
God would show up. Here's what he says. In chapter 9, here's what he says. Hey, here's what would happen. I'll go to God. He'll show up in a storm. He'll tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'll have to just shut my mouth in despair. That's what he expects. What does he get? Exactly what he expects. When we go to uh, the whirlwind passage in chapter 40, when God shows up, I mean, I think most people get the book of Job wrong. I'll just tell you that. I think most people get it wrong because they see chapter 40 as the highlight of the book where God shows up and fixes it. Wrong, I think. Right. Um, God shows up, but then he was, God responds just as Job expected. In fact, the same words get used vocabulary-wise carried over from chapter 9 to describe God's response. Uh, Job, the Lord said to Job, you know, will you contend with God? <laughs> right? And Job's response is, look, I'm a person of small account. What could I answer? Just like he said back in 9, what could I say? I put my hand over my mouth. I'm just going to shut up. That's just like he said he was going to do in chapter 9. Right? Uh, similarly, in chapter 42, then God goes and says, here, let me tell you a bunch of things that make you realize how you don't control anything. Right? Did Job not know that already? He did know that already. Right? Chapter 42, Job answered. He said, I know you can do everything, all things, for the purpose, no purpose of yours, purpose, <laughs> no dolphin, no, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And in other words, I'm ignorant. I don't know how this stuff works. Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you, and you'll make it known to me. He's quoting God, saying, this is what you said, and I heard you from the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. Therefore, what? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Back to mourning. It's not, this, this is not the passage where Job's like, oh, everything is right again in the world because I met God. No, that's not, that's not this. In fact, if it were that, then it might, be, it might vindicate his friends. Right? With the simple God shows up answer. Hope in God answer. God will fix it answer. Right? How am I doing on time? Okay, yikes. Um, so after this, though, here's what we expect from this rebuke. We look at this rebuke, and we're like, okay. Um, so now, how is God going to respond to Job's And the curveball is that God vindicates Job. He goes to his friends, and he says, you got it wrong, and he got it right. And what does that mean? By the time we've come to this far, you know what it means? God says Job is entitled to his despair. Stop trying to fix him with your spiritual bypassing, your toxic positivity, your God stuff. Stop. You don't know anything more than he does. You don't have the experience of decimation of life that he had. So stop acting as if you can speak on God's behalf to him. He is entitled to his despair. Right? He's God's guy. Right. Um, and, and it's a way of, and this pulls us up short. I mean, this is the way in which Job gives us a message similar in some ways to Ecclesiastes. And we read these books sometimes as exceptions. But I think they're actually the rule, and that's a bigger conversation, but we'll maybe talk more about that next time as well, because I think um, the main point we see here is that God wants Job to pray for his friends. Because what Job knows that they don't know is by Job not knowing what he doesn't know and living in wrestling directly with the despair of the uncontrollability of life, that's what his friends can't do, don't have that capacity. They present as spiritually strong, spiritually mature, but because they're fooling themselves. Right? They're living in an illusion, and they need intercession from somebody who sees things as they are. That safety is unpredictable. The world is not predictable. 
The world does not guarantee you safety and control. If you have it, you may not even have it justly. Right? Totally. That's, a, that's exactly right. And I mean, what we're going to come back to, this is all foreshadowing for thinking and talking about Jesus and the, who are the poor in spirit that will in- inherit the kingdom. Right? Who, are, who is the strong and who is the weak? Yeah, who are the strong and who are the weak? Right? Anyway. Well, okay. Um, so I want to, to, one last thing to think about is the epilogue. An epilogue is weird. In Job. Why? Because the whole time we've been spent listening to, listening to this idea that, that uh, this unpredictability and uncontrollability of the world means that, means that you keep your righteousness is no guarantee of your safety. Right? That's what it means. So a kind of retribution theology where God repaid righteousness with reward, that's out the window. Right? But at the end, God gives Job double for what he lost. It says. And then you're like, what? That seems to undermine the whole purpose of the book, to give him a reward. Is this a reward for his righteousness? Right? Giving him double? Um, I don't think that's what's going on. It would undermine the, the meaning of the book. I think something actually a lot more complicated and super weird and interesting is going on. <laughs> um, it's, it's this. Two things, actually. First, I think it's a divine olive branch. Um, and what I mean by this is that the, the language of God giving Job double for what he lost is actually, I think, borrowed from, and I, you can see this in the words, the language that's used, the terms that are used. It's actually borrowed from Israel's law code as uh, the, the, the legal requirement for, the, for theft. As, a, as What happens if somebody steals from you? You have to pay them double. God is... <laughs> responding to Job as if God has stolen things from Job and is repaying him double <laughs> for what God took. And it's like a strange thing, but it seems to be a way in which divine compassion has to be mediated, has to be mediated. So God has already told Job, you can't understand the transcendent point of view that governs the entirety of the world, you know? And makes it, but what you can't understand is only in terms of what's been revealed, in terms of how God governs the world, right? And uh, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this: that the hidden things, the revealed things belong to us; the hidden things belong to God. You know, and um, so God is reaching out in almost the text. Actually, I think frames it in almost looking pathetic the way that God reaches out to make some kind of relationship bridge, despite God's. All the entitlements are already established. God is entitled to sovereignly rule the world however God wants. Job is entitled to his despair when it crushes his life. Right? But you know what you don't have? Somebody that lays his hands on on them both. And so God is trying to make, that's what I mean by an olive branch. You see what I'm saying? Um, So uh, what happens, at, so that's the first thing I think that's interesting here. The second thing is actually when Job is given, he, his dead kids don't come back to life. He gets, his family comes to him, but he, doesn't, he still suffers the grief and loss. And, but this is another illusion that's interesting. You know, this whole thing started by the accuser saying, hey, this guy, if you just take all this stuff from him, then he'll curse you with his face, right? And so he starts with an accuser, and he's been asking for an advocate, right? An advocate. And he's also been asking for solidarity and compassion, right? Those are things he's been asking for. The whole book, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. The whole book, he doesn't get it. His friends don't get it to him. God doesn't get it to him, right? And at the, in the epilogue, it says his, his, his family, family members came and ministered to him. And, he, and it uses the words that from the very beginning, showed him compassion mm-hmm. and sympathy concerning all the evil that the Lord did. And so his family members, con- consoling him concerning all the evil that the Lord did to him, are actually end up being the advocates and the compassion and the solidarity that he'd been looking for the whole time. So what God gave him in the end is the compassion he wanted, but it was mediated 
through human companions who could stand with him, alongside him, not away from him, and on God's side, but somebody next to him who could, alongside him, say, I can't believe that God let these horrible things happen to you. Right? All right. I keep kicking my water bottle. All right, stay there. Um, all right. Um, so compassion comes in that way. And I think, so we have to like conclude here with some takeaways. And I, I, um, I want to just give um, a couple of them. And then I can, if you have a couple minutes left, you, you all can, um, can tell me what you think. All right. First, I think this whole book aims to put to us a question of what kind of comforters we are to the brokenhearted. What kind of comfort are we to the brokenhearted in our midst? Are you a hope Nazi? You know what I mean? Somebody who like is so uncomfortable with people's despair that you have to, you have to try to fix it with some spiritual thing that is not really actually born much out of your own wrestling and doesn't much stand with other persons in their wrestling with trauma. Right? Cheap. It's cheap. Um, do you use your religious beliefs to avoid discomfort with uncertainty, with vulnerability, with uncontrollability, with the unexplainable in life? Do you think of your religious identity as giving you some secret pass into like the key to life that you understand and that somehow, that somehow erases your finitude, <laughs> right? Your, your limitations as a human creature? like all the rest of us human creatures out here who don't have some special insight and knowledge into the, all the things that life gives us, right? Or do you think of yourself as somehow being given some secret key that other people don't have that you can then graciously bestow on them, right? Um, no. <laughs> so um, how, so that's, that's something to really think about. And another way to put this is, I think one way that a theologian sometimes talk about this is to say that God gives us God, the, a plan of redemption, God's self, all these theological truths that we can think about and know about, about God's relationship with the world, in order to hold us still before God and work through our own need for reconciling ourselves to these things that are uncomfortable about life. That's why God gives us these things. And if we can stand in solidarity with others as they, as God holds them still for those purposes, that's great. But we are not, we are not in some, we don't occupy a privileged position in that process, right? In the way that we relate to others. Um, so the second thing is really how can we experience God as standing with us rather than above us in our creaturely limits? How could we how could that happen? How could we find solidarity with God, compassion from God, that God can, can be someone who is not just for us in some mysterious ways that, we cannot, that are too hard for us to understand, but actually be with us as us? Can you see how the incarnation might become something that plays a certain role in our lives when we can think about Jesus as, our, as, as the God who is our brother, the God who suffers with us, the God who, the God who Job wanted, right, it, um, in chapter 9. So um, that's what I want to look at next time, is how does the doctrine of the incarnation, not just some abstract way of talking about how do you reconcile something being God and something human at the same time, but how does Jesus represent God's coming to us in and as us, so that God can, have, can show us the kind of compassion, God can show us the kind of sympathy, God can show us the kind of being with us that we seemingly groped for here by this double thing, double stuff, right? But that it can be done in, a, in the flesh, right? Um, all right, so um, your thoughts uh, about this? Yeah. I think Job is the most abusive book in the Bible in the hands of ignorant Christians. Amen. If someone's depressed, and they suffer from depression, for instance, well, how about Job? 
thing. But think about Joe. It's understandable that he's depressed. Well, he had death in the family, he had disease. Some of the depression, there's no particular house reason. So then some of them will try to cast a demon out of you after that. Except after <laughs> for Joe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And this is, a, this is exactly, that's exactly right. That Job's, um, when, he gets, when he gets used this way, it's this irony like, you're using Job against Job. <coughs> this whole thing is that you tell people to their despair. You get to club somebody's despair. It's, it's a, yeah, yeah. So I've always kind of looked at Job as a case study of how does a righteous person react to mm-hmm. things like that. And I wonder, I think you call it toxic spirituality. Or yeah, toxic positivity, yeah. So toxic So could we uh, be permitted to engage in that with the idea of what I see occurring in the epistles? And James, consider all joy when you encounter various trials. Yeah. You know, that the outcome of trials produce endurance. So yeah, 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 yeah. Or Peter, even. Yeah. Uh, where he says, even for a little while, where you're... Sure. And so... Can we participate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, so here's the thing, right? Um, There's two sides to this. One is to talk about what are the uses of suffering, right? What uses? How can it become productive? How can it be made productive, right? That question. And it's not as if there's no answers to that question, or that it's impossible for suffering ever to become productive. It it can be and and is made productive. and it's not as if there's no place ever to suggest those things to people. I think the, the reason I talk about toxic positivity after talking about terror management and spiritual bypassing is because it's about the way that those uses are appropriated to and for people. The in the moment? Yeah, it's more like, um, like um, the person, we have to be very careful about how these remedies are applied and to whom and in what circumstances. What kind of assumptions of communal life, shared communal life, make it possible to have the, the you know, kind of wherewithal to, to, to make that recommendation to people? In other words, I think we all know the difference between cheap and easy advice from people who don't know what they're talking about. Don't know what they're talking about because they don't experience much suffering themselves. Don't know what they're talking about because they don't know or particularly care about the details of your situation or your confrontation with your difficulties, right? Difference between that and people who are deeply invested, deeply invested in your life, deeply invested in your engagements with your difficulties in your life. Think about the difference between a therapist who's making this kind of, you know, um, helping you work through your trauma and your, you know, estranged uncle at a, at a family reunion who just but can even say the same words, right? It's hard right? to put together, though, because his friends, you know, they were in the, they sat with him for a week. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the first guy, you're Elias, this yeah, is the yeah, guy, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So but, but notice, um, the, the problem only enters when Job unburdens himself mm-hmm. and then they respond by dismissing everything in chapter three that he expresses, invalidating it, and then going on to slap their Band-Aid on it, right? Um, And not only that, but out of a posture that that Job reveals is ignorant. It's like the beam in the eye thing. Like, you haven't dealt with your own thing. Don't pretend that you have some ability to handle this. Let's flip the tables. Let's kill your family. Let's ruin your wealth. Let's decimate your social standing. Now, what was that? Tell me again. Right? And so he's wanting, so it's, it's not the legitimacy of the, of the advice. It's the experience and the standing out of which it's given. Right? Yeah. And I also think, in some sense, Job's friends were better than some friends we might experience because they at least sat yeah, for seven for days. Sure. Absolutely. Have you ever thought of yeah? Yeah. Yeah. But my other question was about the role 
sure. Because if he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and then God is repaying the theft that happened with twice the amount, I'm trying to understand, like, who... We know that God is the one that's in power and control, but mm-hmm. um, I think we kind of see, like, why it is that people fear God, but also we should fear the devil as well. I don't know. Yeah, oh, that's a good question. Um, so one thing to say is that it's not clear that the accuser is the devil in, in Job. Um, Hasatan here comes with a definite article, it's meaning the accuser, meaning it's not actually the, a proper name of anyone at this, in this book. It's actually a title of somebody who plays a certain role, the role of an accuser. Some people have suggested that it, it might even be a human appearing before the divine court who is, right? So it's not clear who the accuser is, the identity of the accuser in this uh, uh, text. And so it's really maybe the role of that person to try to like raise the question of does Job serve God for nothing? That's the main kind of emphasis. Um, so so when so the reason the one way that's significant to address your question about how should we think about like our vulnerabilities in relationship to the devil and stuff like that, I think what this is trying to say is that what we should what should make us feel that vulnerability is the question the accuser asks: Do we serve God for nothing? Right. So it's about the relationship of our attachments and our indifference that is kind of being illuminated by the role of the accuser. Non? Um, when you introduce the idea of the toxic positivity and the spiritual bypassing, uh, you sort of framed it as the reason why people would do that is because they don't want to deal with the chaos and the uncertainty of it. I think there's another part of that as well that you added in your further discussion of it, but didn't name it at the beginning. Sure. Which is that standing in solidarity with the traumatized brings trauma. Yeah. Yes. And if you're going to, and, and I think that that's rational. So if you're a spiritual bypassing, you're not just afraid of the uncertainty. You're afraid of the trauma that you're going to exactly. feel yeah. standing in solidarity. Yep. That's that's an excellent point. Yeah. It's uh, because, um, you know. That being it, that kind of compassion, that and sympathy, even the term sympathy is like a sharing, a sharing in somebody's trauma. Um, but even more than sharing, yeah, you're going to start assuming the same target, yeah, that that person has assumed. Yeah. In Job's case, we're like his family right. has died. That's maybe not the right one. But if you're standing next to someone who's experiencing injustice, you will start to become the object of that injustice. Yeah, because you're going to provoke. Yeah. and irritate the yeah. same sensibilities of fear from other people that the traumatized has. And so you become an irritant in exactly the same way. Stop being a visible reminder of the things that make me uncomfortable, right? So either get on board with us who are trying to push that away, right? Or just be quiet, but don't like amplify the thing we're trying to do this to, right? Yeah. So quietness is preferable. Yeah. Yeah, maybe quietness is easier that way, yeah. One of the things that struck me, um, as you were talking about the thing that Joe was looking for, um, is language that we hear commonly now about people wanting to be seen yeah. and to be heard. Yeah. And, and how significant that is. And rather than having everything fixed necessarily, yeah. I, yeah. not expecting that necessarily, but how powerful it is when people are truly seen and truly, truly heard. seen and truly heard. Exactly. And I think this is why church experiences the kind of losses and difficulty of retaining young people and all these kinds of, This is why. Because people don't feel seen, don't feel heard, and they feel traumatized and re-traumatized in this, in this kind of way. But yeah. For me, the idea of sitting with someone for seven days and then when they begin to... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that like what Don is talking about, when people that willing, that sense of solidarity becomes um, a kind of refuge, a community of solidarity of those who it becomes a refuge where one feels less isolated, where one's trauma feels distributed in ways that make it more manageable. You know, um, so um, so there's a, a, a question of what kind of community arises from those who take this seriously. And the community might look differently in its relations to one another than a community that doesn't in providing the kind of safety um, that, uh, that is exactly, you know, 
such a difficulty for the traumatized. Yeah. Usually when someone's depressed, they isolate and they don't want anyone around. For sure. They don't want to be a burden on people. They don't want to just fall over. Yeah, it's not exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's again the the. the the language of oh please you just gotta not wallow it's like it just you can see how that's just a, a reaction to one's own discomfort with somebody else's difficulty on the plus side of his friends they came to him yeah yeah that doesn't always happen they're uninvited but they were needed yeah yeah that's good yeah sorry we gotta be done oh, yeah yeah we gotta be done but I was wondering if you could add just could you just bless us or a blessing for um, the contest yeah 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 Oh my. <laughs> um, so what I would, the blessing that I would pronounce over us is um, for those of us who live with trauma, may we find in the Lord and in the Lord's people the compassion that gives us the safety that has been robbed, that, we've been, that, that we've been, has been taken from us, and give us a community of those who provide the very means of belonging as ourselves that we desire. For those who are, uh, live among the community of traumatized, may we offer ourselves as those capable of standing in solidarity and may our compassion outrun, our compassion outrun our, our, our answers, all right? Um, give us compassion that moves beyond our, uh, our finitude and our, the limitations of our knowledge to extend the mercy of Christ, who is our divine solidarity and compassion. And um, we ask for these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.